Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Well, we don't know. When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Well, Al, another exciting week in athletics. College football as we know it is no more. The NBA has completely changed several of its storylines, one dealing severely with the Brooklyn Nets. Who will stay? Who will go? What will the league look like as a whole as free agency kicks off? And nothing circles the wagons quite like the National Football League as we know. But we are thrilled to be joined by one Mike Meltzer, somebody that I have worked as a producer for for several years on SiriusXM's Mad Dog Sports Radio. He's an attorney. He's also a Syracuse grad. So great. I have to deal with two of those now on the program instead of just one. You can hear him on the Mike Meltzer podcast as well. Mike, thanks for joining the show. We appreciate you dealing with us for a couple minutes. John, Al, I appreciate the invite. It's been a long time coming. Thank you. Absolutely. Mike, it's- Great to have you with us. You know I love talking to you, and obviously there's a lot we have to explore tonight. But John's going to start the ball rolling just so we can get an idea of how you got where you're at. Yeah, I wanted the listeners to get a little bit better of a picture of what we've come to know, both from working with you and listening to your programs. Somebody that's not only a lawyer but also in sports talk radio that came from Syracuse, that went and got a JD from UH Law, so somebody that has been around the Mulberry Bush, and I don't know when you have time to sleep, so maybe you could just (laughs) let everybody in on how you got to where you are today and what kind of sparked your passions, both in law and both in sports radio as well. Sure. So I went to Syracuse, graduated in 2008, so just a couple of years after Al did, and actually... (laughs) My <laughs> my first paying job in broadcasting was actually with SiriusXM. Uh, I was doing production from like 08 to 2010, you know, cutting sound in the newsroom, all that kind of stuff. And simultaneously, I started kind of cobbling together jobs like a utility infielder. So I, I would be I would fill in for a show in Hartford. I was simulcasting New Haven from time to time. Uh, I, I somehow latched onto ESPN. Uh, in Bristol doing updates on the radio network. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what they were thinking in hiring me at the time. I think I kind of duped them. But so basically, for two years out of college, I was doing those three things at once. Came down to Houston in 2010. It was my first full-time job in radio. And I spent nine years working full-time for a station here called Sports Radio 610. And I did, I started doing afternoon updates, kind of like weekend shows, Eventually got the midday show, went to morning drive, uh, got let go in 2019. I had gone to law school. I apologize for the background. I'm around like six cats. You can ask me about that later. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I got let go in 2019. I had gone to law school part-time for the previous like 40 years. And so actually the timing wasn't that bad because it allowed me to kind of explore uh, my legal career while 
hooking back on with Sirius XM to do all the shows on Mad Dog. Now, you, you are from Connecticut, correct? That is correct. I mean, I've lived in New York. Um, you know, I was actually born in Russia. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, but we came here when I was three. So I lived in Brooklyn, lived in Rockland County. I moved to Connecticut before eighth grade. And so I graduated from high school there, which is why I, whenever anybody asks, I say that's where I'm from. And then obviously you, you made your sojourn to you know, the Harvard of Central New York. Yes. Uh, I, 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 I presume went to the New York School of Communications. Correct. Came out, came out of there with a, you know, a 4.0 at least. And <laughs> yeah, close. <laughs> what, 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 I mean, Northeast to Houston is a big move. Yeah. So what, what prompted you know, the move to Houston? Was it best offer out there? Did you have an interest in the Southwest? I mean, how, did, how does you know, Northeastern make that move? I had applied to a couple of jobs. Like I was just always looking for whatever the opportunity was to get me, you know, it's like going on my own and all that. And uh, I, at the same time, I was actually talking to a radio station in Louisville, Kentucky at the same time. And they had made me an offer, but it was like a split shift where I would do you know, updates in the morning on their radio network and then basically do an afternoon show for two hours in the afternoon with somebody else. And so that was an, like an interesting opportunity, but it was also basically doing two jobs in one. And it was less money, actually, than the offer in Houston where uh, I talked to a guy named Gavin Spittle. I actually you, you almost never get jobs in broadcasting this way, but I saw the job online. I applied online through like the CBS radio at the time portal and a guy named Gavin Spittle, uh, who I think is one of the finest uh, program directors in the country. I think he is certainly the most underrated. He runs 105.3 The Fan in Dallas. Uh, so anyway, Gavin, who was in Houston, obviously, at the time, calls me. And we spent like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes on the phone. This is back in the summer of 2010. Uh, he called me, I think, like later that night and was like, hey, I want you to come down. You know, it was a full-time job doing updates in the afternoon, like on the afternoon show, and doing one weekend show or whatever. So basically sh six shifts a week. And I'd never been to Texas, never been to Houston, obviously, but I figured, you know, it was a big city. I figured like how different could it be? And I've been here since. Now, is this like the old days where you send in tapes, et cetera, et cetera, you know, for them to get an idea of how you are on the air or Basically. What, what was the, what was the resume that said, we want you down here after a 15 minute phone call? I think what helped is because when I applied, I, I think at some point, like I mailed a, an actual a, a CD, which at the time I was like, Oh, right. this is the thing that you said, you sent out a CD and not like yeah. a cassette tape. Uh, now I don't think they do that anymore. I'm guessing they're just send MP3s around, I suppose, Dropbox, whatever. But yeah, I, I had a whole like CD with like my, a picture of me on the cover and all that, that I designed. And uh, I, it had like a bunch of things on there, like, you know, a couple of updates, because that's what the job was for. A couple of like segments of shows that I had done in Hartford uh, or in other places. And so it was a pretty quick resume CD. It was probably like, probably like 25 to 30 minutes of, of, of audio content. It wasn't like hours and hours of stuff. Did you have an instant taking to Houston or did it take a while to grow on? I mean, it's, I would say it took a while. Like it was my first time really living on my own. Uh, I got a place which was probably too expensive for how much I was making at the time, which was not much. Uh, and it took a time, it took a while to adjust, but I, you know, at the time, like I, I think our station was in a good place. 
um, I was working with, uh, like, let me choose my words carefully here. Uh, so I, I at, the, at about maybe eight months earlier, Gavin had hired a guy named Josh Innes, uh, who's worked at a bunch of stations since. Uh, Josh is probably the most talented broadcaster I've ever worked with. And he, at that time, was doing, at first, he was like the third guy in the morning show, and he did like the one-hour solo before Rome came on. And like six months later, they put Josh in afternoons. And so we had kind of like a, like just a bunch of young guys at the station. Uh, the Texans that year were underachieving, but like the next year, they went on a big run, made the playoffs for the first time. And it was just like between having the rights to the team, they got to the playoffs for the first time. Like you can kind of feel sometimes a station when it gets hot. And like at that, at that time, like the station was like really rolling, I'd say. Uh, but that's sort of aside from your question. Like I, I would say it, it took a little bit of time, but I, like anybody I talk to, whenever they ask me about what Houston is like, I always tell them it's a very easy place to live. Like, you know, as far as cost of living goes, there's a lot of like new construction, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I happen to think that it's one of the best food cities in the country, very diverse and such. And so I, I do like it here. Obviously, if I didn't, I probably would have left at some point. Well, I've been able to see the preparation on my end, producing some of your programs where I open up the Google Doc that we're working on for the show, and you're <laughs> frantically typing away some of the most intense, organized, specific talking points of how the show is going to go, what points you're going to hit on, what questions you're going to ask the audience. Is that how you've been putting your shows together since the beginning or an evolution of just doing this for so long at this point, you just know this is how I want things to go. So that's a great question, John. When I do solo shows, that's how I do it. I'll like, if people like, I, I have a whole Google doc where it's usually like a, you know, five to eight page rundown where I'm jotting down a lot of bullet points. And if I'm doing like a, but if I'm doing, if I'm co-hosting a show, then typically it's more about the topic and the time. Like when I used to do a show with Seth Payne in Houston in the morning, we'd have, you know, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. And it would be more kind of like, all right, what topic are we going to talk about in which segment and what specific angle are we going to hit on? I wouldn't really write down like a bunch of things that I would say because that would come naturally. Whereas if I'm doing a solo show, I'm always kind of petrified idiotically that like, what if I just run out of stuff to talk about like 20 minutes into the show? And so part of the way I relieve that stress is let me jot down a lot of different points, a lot of different topics so that I go into a show knowing that, Hey, no matter what, like I'm going to find a way to get through these three or four hours. Uh, but it's, it's not so much a script. It kind of gets my mind flowing. And, you know, a big thing to me when it comes to sports talk radio is, all right, you start a show and you have a monologue or, you know, 90 minutes in, you have a segment about this. I'm always thinking about the question of, what is the point that I'm trying to drive home to the audience? Like, why are they listening at the start of the show? What is the fundamental point I want to convey? And sometimes you might have like a, a super strong take on something. Sometimes it might be more of a question. Sometimes it might be more of like a lighthearted thing. You want to play some audio, whatever. But there always has to be, I think, there, there always has to be a point. Like, why are you talking about a specific topic? And what do you want to convey to the audience? Like what specifically? And you have to sum it to one or two sentences. That's something I'm always kind of thinking to try to get better for each show. 
it really sounds similar to you know, my preparation for this program, you know, with Google Docs and stuff like that, as John can attest to. Uh, uh, <laughs> under your head, you can only yeah. do one of them. You can practice law or you can do this. Got to get rid of the other one. Which one, which one loses out? Ah, that's a hard question. I mean, I'd say if I could get like the- That's why I get the big money. That, yeah, <laughs> that's true. I would say if I could have a perfect one, maybe the sports radio, but honestly, Al, like I've been kind of straddling both worlds for, honestly, at this point, kind of a long time. Like since the fall of 2015, when I went to law school part-time, I've been doing two things at once. And I kind of, I kind of appreciate the balance that I have in my life. And See, I again, feel like again, yeah. we're similar because I've been doing that for 35 years, but the difference is I've only been getting paid for doing one aspect of it. Which yes. Is practice law. Right? Yes. Well, I, 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 I consider myself very fortunate. So I, I'm, I'm very lucky. Last thing before we switch over to some sports topics that have been rumbling around is we obviously have to ask about why this you're in a room with six cats and what's going on in the background. That's right. Well, I'm hanging out with some friends of mine, and uh, so there was a there was a cat that gave birth. <laughs> this is an outdoor cat, and there are there are like five other ones, but they're not. They're like being raised outdoors and sort of like slowly given away. One of these kind of deals, uh, and so I'm, I'm in my friend's backyard. There are three kittens that are like playing or fighting with each other. So you're outside. Do. I'm outside. Yeah, it, it's not too hot though, Al. It's like. It's like 90 or something. It's warm, but it's not like super scorching. It's not too hot. I would say with cats of the wild. Um, yep. I'm looking forward uh, to you having to explain to your friends too. Yeah, it's it's called the New Report, Old Report podcast. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to yes. try to find yeah, one, it for you. Hold on. No, yeah, like, I what? Think, <laughs> who? I, see, that, that's what's funny. I think like me, exp- yeah, I think me explaining to you guys the cats will be about as odd as me explaining to them exactly who I'm talking to after this. Let's get down to business now that we got the, the, the personal aspect of the show. You are there. Yes. You have got the pulse of it. You know, obviously, what's going on in the NFL right now, the biggest news, is your former Houston quarterback and his upcoming hearing. So tell us a little bit about the Deshaun Watson scenario in terms of where it is right now, what you expect in terms of how the hearing is going to be conducted and is in fact the commissioner, the ultimate arbiter of this hearing in terms of a decision-making process. So I think, you know, so I think the hearing has concluded lasted three days and it sounds like it's going to take a while out before we get a decision because, you know, the reports coming out of the hearing were basically that the judge wants both sides to submit briefs by July 11th. So, that's in basically what, you know, a week and a half, two weeks. She's probably going to take a little time to read those briefs, consider everything presented the last couple of days, and then make a decision. Um, so a couple of things. It, it definitely seems like the public relations part of this is that the NFL wants it known that they're pushing for an indefinite suspension. Like, they've made it known to some of these reporters, like the guy from the Wall Street Journal, uh, the guy from the Associated Press, that, like, they keep pushing for – Deshaun to get a one-year suspension or indefinite suspension of at least a year, and they'll they'll basically let him reapply. Whereas the other side, Rusty Harden, Jeff Kessler, by having of the union are arguing, well, you know, there's really no strength to these cases. Two grand juries looked at this and they decide not to indict Deshaun. 
we actually think there, there should be no suspension. And so one side's arguing like seemingly the harshest punishment and the other is arguing for none. And you kind of think that it's going to meet somewhere in the middle, but maybe towards the NFL end of it. Um, I, I wonder the same thing you do, Al, about is this ultimately going to go to Roger Goodell? This is the first time under this new CBA that they're using this whole process with Judge Sue Robinson. And so she has a two-year term. So I think we're actually, I believe, a little outside maybe that two-year window. And so there's a question of Sue Robinson has to first find that Deshaun Watson violated the NFL's personal conduct policy. I'm going to assume that she will find that way. And then she's going to issue sort of her own ruling, whether that's a year, 10 games, six games, 12, whatever. And then both sides can appeal. And I, I wonder about sort of the politics of that. Does the NFL want to appeal to Goodell under Article you know, 46 of the CBA, or do they want to just accept what the judge decides? Because this is like you know, the mutually agreed upon arbitrator, and let's go with her decision the first time through this new process. So those are kind of my initial thoughts on what's happened with the hearing and what's going to happen moving forward. But I, I, I expect it to be a lengthy suspension, um, and I wouldn't be shocked if it was the full season. At the same time, you know, based on some of the discussion this week, I also wouldn't be completely stunned if it was like six to eight games and a little bit less. But, but is, is, is Goodell the ultimate decision maker or not? Yes, yes, Al, but only if they appeal it to Goodell. Right. If they, ju- if they just accept the arbitrator's you know, decision – then I guess he wouldn't be for this matter. Right. But ultimately, ultimately if, if, yeah. Ultimately, he, he, if he's they the Supreme to, Court. He is the Supreme Court. Yes. Okay. I think he's going to get uh, a year, which I think yeah. will eventually be knocked down to ten games. That's what I think is going to happen. I yeah. told you the very beginning of this that the reason he took the Browns' money is I thought it was his war chest because they were the only ones. It offered the full guaranteed money for the life of the contract. Uh, no issues with respect to deferring anything, all except for the fact that his salary this year also fit into the scheme of his representatives, where his salary for this year is only $1 million, I believe, in terms of what would Based be out. lost versus the signing bonus money. And the signing yeah. bonus money was his war chest for settlement. Do you yep. think? Settlement of what is it, 20 out of 24? So that's I do the math real quick. That's 10 out of 12. That's almost 90 percent. Do you think the settlement will have any role in these proceedings and the judge's, the arbitrator's ultimate decision with respect to his suspension, where he's all wants that I've done nothing wrong? Uh, you know, I'm going to fight these cases. You know, obviously, we're not in a court of law in, in terms of innocent until proven guilty. We are in a scenario, a civil court, preponderance of the evidence, but this has nothing to do with those cases. Those cases have been settled. What, if anything, do you think impact wise that will have on the judge in her decision-making, if at all? I actually don't think any, I don't think Deshaun settling those cases will increase the suspension. I don't think it'll decrease the suspension. I think it's good for him from a public relations standpoint, just the idea that at some point for him, you want to see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, I mean, I think you and I know about situations where it's going to be hard to just get rid of cases, like sort of on the motions. 
Um, and I think those cases will be tough to get rid of, especially in state court. And so ultimately, it's like either you settle or you go to trial. That would take a long time. It would take a lot. It would cost a lot of money. I think there are a lot of risks for both sides. So I think for Deshaun getting 20 settled, I think was a positive development, uh, more from a PR standpoint than anything else, because now he can knock out 20. He can focus on four. I'm thinking those four will settle at some point. Might be later rather than sooner since it didn't happen, you know, within the the, the, the 20. But ultimately, to your question, I think it neither adds nor uh, subtracts from the suspension. I think it's probably better for the uh, the football institutional parties. It's better for Deshaun. And I think the NFL would prefer a world in which he had all these cases settled. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it clears away the muck and mire. It's out of the headlines. It allows them to yep. move on to business. My follow-up to that is, let's say one side appeals. Do you think those cases, 20 of them or ultimately all of them, by the time a decision, maybe appeal comes out, being settled would play in the determination of the length of the suspension based upon the fact that, again, you settled all these cases, so you're obviously admitting you did something wrong, so you're getting a year versus, you know, four games. Yeah, I, I think that's a hard – I think it's a hard stance for them to take, especially the, especially that judge who – No, I mean the commissioner. Gonna, I mean the, the commissioner, commissioner. If it goes to the commissioner. Yeah, I mean, I, I just – here's the thing. Goodell can obviously do whatever he wants. Like, he's – I guess in this process, he's not technically – the judge, jury, and executioner like he used to be. I guess now he's more like, you know, the superior judge and the executioner, theoretically. He's not the jury. Uh, but remember, Roger nearly lost his job, what, eight years ago because he gave Ray Rice, quote-unquote, uh, too few games with number two, with two games before that video came out. Uh, so you think the NFL, I don't know if the NFL actually cares that much, but it seems like they're doing this to me anyway, more from a public relations standpoint than anything else. Um, I. I, mean, I think that's a t- it's a tough stance to tell Deshaun, like, hey, we're going to look at your settlements as admissions of liability. Because if I was Deshaun's representatives, I'd say, like, listen, settlements are not admissions of liability. And what do you expect us to do? Basically fight this all the way to 2024 and 2025? Uh, like, at some point, it just makes the most business sense, even if these are allegations that, you know, could rise to felonies if they're proven true. It just makes the most business sense to settle them now versus let them linger and drag on. Well, I was surprised it took this long. You know, we've talked yeah, all along. I, 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 I think so I too. Yeah. I thought he was going to settle it, settle it, and yep. or settle you know it, as many of them as he could. And I think he finally got to the scenario where his people said to him, "Look, I mean, it, 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 it's time now. You know, you can fight and, and scream you know at the top of your lungs. They're not going away. And just how long do you not want to play?" Because well, until until we get these things taken care of, you ain't playing. Because well, he's not. Al, he's he's not playing. Yeah, not for a little while, maybe a long while. Remember, they nearly settled all these cases last October when he was about to be traded to Miami, when it was a condition of the trade, and they got nearly all of them settled, but it all fell apart because I think it might have been actually four that wouldn't settle. I don't know if it was that exact number. I don't know if it was the same four that remain holdouts now, but they nearly settled 20 of them in October. And then I do wonder if there was a little, um, a little second guessing of that in the Watson camp. Like, you know what, based on everything that happened from March to now, should we have maybe settled those cases? And would that have, you know, sort of helped the momentum of the defense? If you let's take a quick break to pay the bills. 
He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. Let's step aside from the legal aspect of it. Since you're there, what has the reaction been from beginning as their guy, uh, their cover boy, the face of the franchise, you know, national champ, you know, their first pick, their coveted player, when this all came out, based upon his reputation in the community, and then when the allegations came out and obviously the issues with the front office, but just in terms of the, the reaction of the fan base, male and female, in yep. Houston to him before, during, and now. I'll actually, Al, go back to before the lawsuits came out. So when the report came from Adam Schefter two months earlier, this is January 2021. So when he demands a trade, this was one of the very rare cases, I think, in sports where the local fan base was more supportive of the guy asking for the trade as opposed to the franchise which you almost never see anywhere in any situation because fans are going to be so provincial and loyal and biased toward their team. People were so fed up about the way the Texans were run and people actually supported Deshaun in his trade demand. Like that was the craziest thing. And I can't express how unexpected that first lawsuit was. And the ensuing couple of weeks after that, when, you know, basically there was a cascade and avalanche of, other lawsuits alleging very much the same kind of behavior. Like when I zoom out and I think about how big of a story it is now with Deshaun compared to the player that I covered and the guy coming out of Clemson, like it is one of the wildest things I have ever seen in my life in sports. If you had told me this was going to happen to some Texans player, like obviously if it was JJ Watt, I would have been pretty shocked as well. Like this would have floored me. If you had told me this would have happened, you know, two years ago, I, I would have thought you were absolutely insane. This is somebody who came out of Clemson with a pristine reputation. You guys heard about the way that Davo Sweeney talked about him. And it wasn't just Davo. It was like Clemson fans, uh, Deshaun's sort of presence, aura. Uh, like, I can't overstate what a turn this has been to the point where I wonder when Deshaun gets back on the field, whether in 2023 or 2024, how he is going to, or sorry, 2022 or 2023, how he's going to react to being somebody who's hated. Because it's not easy being hated. Uh, you know, some of the Astros players, I think, have not dealt well with that. Some guys have, some guys have not. It's a unique spot to be in. And to go back to the question, like, now, like, in a weird way, and I haven't talked about this a lot on the Sirius XM shows that I do, but here was what was going to happen. I'm going to tell you guys what was going to happen. Before any of the lawsuits, like, the Texans were going to have to trade Deshaun Watson, and they might have gotten a little bit more than they actually got. Let's say they would have gotten three first-round picks, you know, three seconds, whatever, as opposed to the three firsts and then the, the, the amalgamation of stuff they got. And they would have looked like the biggest dumbasses basically on the face of the planet in the NFL, like a trade that basically you don't get over for like a millennium, essentially. And because of this, in like the weirdest of ways – I think from a Houston Texans standpoint, kind of depending on what happened since they got sued this week as well, like it's almost worked out in a weird way, ideally for them, because now 
I feel like nationally people forget the time. Like even locally in Houston, people forget the time. I like, no, like Deshaun didn't want out because of the lawsuits. There was no conspiracy where <laughs> he asked for a trade and then they, they threw all this, you know, at him. He wanted out before any of this. Like he wanted out because the organization was inept. And now that is all being kind of lost in the mud, like the Jack Easterby stuff and the weird way that they ended up hiring Nick Casario, on and on and on. Now, Deshaun is looked at in Houston as essentially a disgraced figure. And while people are not like super in on the Texans, in a weird way, his behavior has basically taken their organization completely off the hook. And it seems like now, especially three months after, like they traded Deshaun at the exact right time. And Nick Casario has had to make a bunch of decisions, uh, some many not so important. This was the most important decision he had to make or the most important thing he had to do, which was handle the Deshaun Watson process right and get the most for him. And on that one, and I've been critical of other things Nick has done, but this one, he absolutely got right. I think he hit it out of the park considering the fact you know, the, the timing of it, he waited any longer and he wasn't going to get nearly as much. And you, you also don't have the player. So yes. I, I think he, he did very well on that. Part. Is he disgraced there? I would say, yeah, I'd say yes. I think it's a fair word to say. I, I, I do think so. When, when Deshaun comes back and plays at NRG stadium and technically the Browns are, well, they are scheduled for the Texans. Who knows? late in the season. Let's see if Deshaun is available to play that game, but he is not going to get a good reception. And, you know, one thing I noticed, and this might be a minor thing. I pointed this out once. Deshaun did not, and I'm not saying people asked for it. And I'm not saying that like the city deserves it or whatever. Deshaun did not give any sort of thank you to the city of Houston. When the trade went down, I have been monitoring this for the last three months, not like an Instagram post with fancy images and writing and calligraphy and all that. Like John Wall just had a buyout with the Rockets. John Wall thanked the city of Houston. The guy played for a year, then sat out of you. Like it's a pretty low bar in 2022 with athletes giving thank yous to cities. And Deshaun Watson, who like even through the first news conference in Cleveland is talking about his image, his brand, like he wrote a children's book. He talks about a service in the community. Neither he nor his camp have given a thank you to the city of Houston. And that is that is still very baffling to me. Even if it's not even if it's not desired by the city, I still think it was the right thing to do or it would have been the right thing to do. Not only are you hated in Houston, you're going to be hated when you're on the Cleveland Browns of all the teams to be hated on as your new team. The Browns. <laughs> not great. Although, if he starts winning football games, Mike, they're going to turn a blind eye as quick as you can, you can blink for them to do it. You start winning football games for the Cleveland Browns, all this stuff, once the dust is settled, they're not going to think about it for two seconds. That jersey's going to come out with all the former quarterbacks crossed off of it, the latest being Baker Mayfield, <laughs> it appears, and they're going to love to put his name on the back if he wins football games, which is the unfortunate part about the National Football League. And I think, though, I think, John, it is going to take a lot of time to get to that because it, the Browns fan base, I almost kind of feel for them because they've been thrown into this situation. And it's like, you know, what do you kind of do if you're a Browns fan? You weren't necessarily asking for this. But the organization, to me, I think made a very simple bet, which is and people have been very critical of their investigation. Like the national NFL media loves, loves knocking the Browns investigation of Deshaun. 
And I don't know what they did, but my guess is, like any NFL team or professional sports organization, I am sure what they did is they hired they hired private investigators. They brought in like former law enforcement types, and they did deep dives into what happened here with Deshaun Watson. And what and they're and they're basically they they're basically making a bet on the two grand juries decided not to indict. Here is what all of our people are telling us behind the scenes. And this is somebody with no criminal history at all before this. And we're betting that Deshaun Watson never gets in trouble ever again. And I think that last part is actually a safe bet. But there's been all this conversation about, like, the investigation, the investigation, the investigation of the Browns. Like, what does anybody think they were going to do? I mean, they weren't going to – I know they've been criticized for not trying to reach out to the women suing Deshaun. If I was their attorney, Tony Busby, why would I allow – or why would I recommend my clients to talk to the Cleveland Browns? Like, what possible upside does that have for them? I wouldn't so let my client talk. Them. I wouldn't let my client talk to anybody. Yes. Like, what possible upside could that have for them? So I know that's a very common media talking point as a criticism, but that's one from my attorney brain that I do not buy. There's, if you're Busby, there's got to be a gag order on your clients. The last people you're going to talk to are those people because you don't know how they are going to twist it, how they are going to turn it and how they're going to put it out there for the press. So nothing yes. positive can come from it because they're the ones who signed the guy. And you remember he wasn't going there. Correct me if I'm wrong. He had his list of trade candidates and the Browns got crossed off and we all know they were. it's yep. cold. It's snowy and it's outside. And so is Pittsburgh. And so is Baltimore, and so is Cincinnati. But, oh, yeah, they're the ones, the only ones, who guaranteed all the money. So, I, I mean, you know, when in doubt, right, what's the old saying? Follow the money? Pretty easy. Yes. We yes. know why he signed in, in Cleveland, because they guaranteed yeah. all the money. And, and even though I'm not going to begrudge an athlete from getting as much money as they can because there's a short window to make it, there is kind of the feeling that like Deshaun and his people sort of took advantage of the situation and, and created a bidding war that would not have existed in a different circumstance. And like, yeah, it's hard to get up there when like everybody knows, like Al just mentioned that the reason why he accepted the trade to the Browns is not because, Oh, he loves Kevin Stefanski or they have this excellent offensive line and they've got the two great running backs. <laughs> and I'm sure that all that stuff helped, but it's like, but he ultimately chose them instead of Atlanta or Carolina or New Orleans because of the money. And that's okay in a normal guaranteed, the, the guaranteed money. The guaranteed money. But in this the, case, that's the war chest. Yep. And but in this case, in the context, in context, it looks bad. We're on the topic of Houston. We talked about the hideous football team and the organization that I have heard you ripped to shreds on a regular basis on the airwaves. But I believe you mentioned earlier the team that knocked off Big John's Yankees once again tonight in another brilliant pitching outing in combination <laughs> to their bullpen that finished off the, uh, the hitless wonders who are the New York Yankees, at least against Houston. Big time city, lots of pro sports. Where did the Astros, who are – World champs every year during the postseason, seemingly every year they're in the ALCS. They're playing terrific again 
without their star shortstop, they have continued to roll on despite the fact that my former assistant general manager, the St. Louis Cardinals, who built the Astros, Jeff Luna, from the ground up, he literally built that team from the basement and does not get enough credit for what he put together there, the foundation that he built, which rolls on. They continue to flourish. Where are they in the Houston genre uh, you know, of, of the sports fans there? Where do they fit? Are they number one on the list? Are they you know, behind you know, the, the, the Rockets? Are they behind uh, the Texans? What's, what's the deal there in Houston? How do they look at their baseball team? They are the number one team in town, and that has been the case since 2015 – 2017 especially, it is the number one team in town. It has become a baseball town. You know, will it remain that forever? Obviously, it depends on the life cycle, how competitive they are. But it is absolutely the number one team in town. It's not always the number one story because, you know, it's Texas football is always going to be king. And so historically, the Texans are number one, whether they're playing well or mediocre or poorly. Like, they'll, they're typically number one. But I think that's changed because so many people are out on the Texans right now, although there's slightly more optimism. And I think with the Astros, what you also get is very much an us-against-the-world mentality, which in this case is probably justified with the national reactions to the cheating scandal. And so whenever the Astros happen to be like on Fox or on Sunday Night Baseball, on ESPN, like people are always like very sensitive to like what's being said, what's being framed in a certain way. Uh, but it is it is a very big deal. And I know people here especially get up for those games against the Yankees. Like, it's weird. I would say right now in this moment, it's not, you know, Texas or any of the teams in the division. Like, the rivalry which has the most juice the last couple of years clearly is the Astros and the Yankees. And that is something that you can feel in this town. Scumbags, Mike. That's what the Astros are to uh, the Yankee fans in response to that. Scumbags. But yes, the rivalry has definitely strengthened. It's a fiery one now. The fuck Altuve chance, the him hitting a home run in response to them chance. The games are multiple crazy. Times. Yes, multiple <laughs> times, of course. The atmosphere is wild, and it's if you're a baseball fan, it's a little fun to to see something like that. It's fun to see hatred in sports. As much as we like to talk about people having dignity and respect, etc., it's nice when teams hate each other, and it's nice when they're good enough to hate each other, and that goes across all sports. That's just the way of the world, and we now have that with the Houston Astros, but you know what? It was just a regular season game tonight, so we can move along to the next topic. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. To keep segueing with Houston, the college football team moving to the Big 12 for next season as part of the four-team merger to strengthen the Big 12. We thought that was going to be the last of the storylines for college football heading into this season. And then the Pac-12 slash Big Ten dropped a nuclear bomb on the college sports world, where apparently the alliance, which consisted of a firm handshake with eye contact and trust instead of a written document that might have put things into perspective for the three conferences that made that, turned out to just be hearsay because the Big Ten 
said, hey, if USC and UCLA want to come join us, we're not going to say no. And that bombshell broke for those two teams, powerhouse in the Pac-12, moving over to the Big Ten, which poses hundreds of different questions now as to what conferences are done. Now who's going to steal from whom? What is the college football landscape going to look like come 2024, come 2025? Is there going to be a power two? Are these five conferences going to survive? What's the new Big 12 commissioner going to do? He hasn't even taken over yet, and he has to deal with all this nonsense come August. What did you make of the initial news when this broke, shook up the college sports world, and we have UCLA and USC jumping ship to go join the Big Ten? Uh, to me, it is a massive day in college sports uh, on Thursday because it's the – you could argue that this was inevitable when Texas and Oklahoma made the decision to go to the SEC. But the weird part was everything had kind of quieted down after that. It seemed like they had kind of like – you know, they had, so to speak, inappropriate for our episode. They sort of like herded the cats together, and then this kind of came out of nowhere. Like, I think if you were – all right, let's imagine we were having this conversation and we were like, hey, there's going to be a big domino that's going to fall next in college sports as far as realignment. I think if we were all guessing, we would have been like, well, maybe Clemson goes to the SEC and with Florida State. Like, I don't think anybody's first guess would have been USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten. Like, that is a foundational change in college sports. The Pac-12, the Pac-10 in, in, in its versions, like, it's been around for over 100 years, basically. And it's the state schools plus Stanford all up and down the West Coast, mostly very good academically. And there's always, you know, they play in the Rose Bowl against the Big Ten most of the time. Like, this is seismic. You can't overstate this. Like, this is bigger to me than if Duke and Carolina had left the ACC, hypothetically. And we know what this leads to. It leads to a situation where we're going to have two massive conferences that matter. And it may be ultimately only sort of one division, if you will, that matters. It will be the Big Ten and the SEC, and they'll start adding teams, and there'll be the question of, are you in that group of teams that's being added, or are you left out in some sort of like secondary kind of division? Does it bother you at all from an aesthetic point of view now that yes. it's nowhere close to 10, and they still call it the Big Ten? Obviously, that's always <laughs> But, I don't even care. I don't care, Al. I don't get to cut you off. I don't care about the 10, the number. It's more about the, the geographical consistency. Like, exactly. I, that, that's yeah. my, that's my, my next, you know, when they're inside and they're playing basketball, you can almost like, when, for example, you know, Syracuse moved to the ACC. It was a stunning move for us. Uh, more so in basketball than anything else because of the bedrock of the Big East was Syracuse, Georgetown, et cetera. But this geographic jump, with the Pac-12 and the Big Ten from a football perspective. We're used to seeing, you know, 85, sunshine, okay, it rains sometime in Stanford, it rains sometime in Oregon, but they're going to middle America. They're going to the snow, they're going to the cold, they're going to the big house, they're going to the horseshoe. This is a massive transition geographically from a football point of view, which is always what it's about. It's always about the football because that's where all the money is. That's what obviously prompted the move you know, from, from the Big East to the ACC for Syracuse and the other teams uh, you know, that followed because of the football money. It was only basketball, so many schools were basketball conferences. But now, you know, all these schools play all sports. It's going to be a huge change for baseball uh, where you've got all these West Coast teams going to the Midwest, uh, you know, in, in USC and UCLA. But from a baseball standpoint, it's still A-OK -okay because you've got a lot of really good baseball programs that remain 
in what's left of the Pac-12. Uh, you've still got a lot of really good basketball pro- programs that remain in what's left of the Pac-12. But the heart and soul, even though they have dropped off dramatically, and they have, you know, of the glory days for UCLA, from a football standpoint, the pretty picture, the pretty face, the stars of the show, the glitz, has always been USC and UCLA. And to think of them <laughs> playing in the snow half their, half their regular season games, it's like, it's, it's a shocker. It's just, you look at it and you're like, how is this happening? I agree. I mean, I, if I could, I know it's all about the money, and I understand money is what makes the world go around. But I would prefer guys to be in a situation where it's like it was in the late 90s. And I know that Penn State went from independence to the Big Ten, and that was a, a foundational change at that time. But it just feels like what I have loved about college football growing up, the regionalization, the rivalries is being lost. And there's nobody who's in charge. You know, there's no commissioner. It's just a bunch of fiefdoms that are battling over territory. And the only people that really matter are the commissioners and the schools, and they're going to do what's in their own self-interest. And they're not going to, like, bundle themselves together. For example, what USC and UCLA are doing to the other schools on the West Coast, what Oklahoma did to Oklahoma State. Uh, And I'm okay with self-interest. Like, I'm a capitalist. I'm a free market person. But I I just feel like, if this sport was being run by like a commissioner or like a bunch of people who actually had the power to, you know, allow or disallow these sorts of things, then we would go back to Nebraska being in the big 12 and Colorado being in the big 12 and just those conferences having to organically compete within their own natural regions. Like we're going to have these giant conferences where even some of the biggest programs play each other like every three or four years. And I just think for many college football fans, that is not going to be a good thing. Like I'll tell you this, Al, and you would probably appreciate this. So in 2005, I heard what I thought was one of the dumbest things I had heard in my life at the time. This was at WAER, the college radio station where I worked in Syracuse. And our talk show director at the time was a guy named Jeff Tabiri. And Jeff now works at NPR in North Carolina and does a great job. And Jeff made the comment, he was like, listen, I just don't think that Syracuse University as a private school in upstate New York is a university that is equipped to have a division one college football program. Uh, that's basically what he said. And I'm like, and this is, you know, this is in 2005. So, you know, Donovan McNabb had played there like six years earlier. I'm like, this is one of the weird, like, how is this possibly a take? Like, how does someone have this opinion? And now, you know, 15, 17, 18 years later, I look at it between all the conference realignment, between the money that's in NIL. I'm like, now I get what Jeff was saying all those years ago. How can Syracuse compete with what's going on with the conference realignments, I know they're in the ACC and barely competitive, but like, how do they compete with the money that's being thrown around with the NIL? They can't. And Syracuse has a, a mammoth alumni, which is a, a very well-to-do alumni, but yeah. it, it pales in comparison. To yeah, but these, it's not... It's not these Alabama. It's not no. Uh, yeah, these, yeah. these state schools are, mm-hmm. you know, the the, the 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 student base is ten times the size of Syracuse. All right, the war chests that they have to work with are, are just they are so dominant in in terms of dollars. Syracuse cannot compete with them, and it shows on the field. Uh, they have not been anything remotely resembling mediocre at best on the football field, and. This is just a constant snare of the rich getting richer. And, and the problem with it is you now are going to have 
teams that in years gone by would be at the top of their conference and competing for a national title. And they're in fourth and fifth place in their own conference. And I yep. don't think that's good for the sport. I don't think everybody in one spot, you know, if, if you take all the best teams in major league baseball, and put them in one division, it's not good for the sport. Yeah. You don't if want all, yeah. if you take all the best NFL teams, you know, in a particular season and, and forget about conference, just put them in one division, take the four best teams, put them in one. That's not good for the sport. You, know, you don't have yeah. to have, you don't have to have constant parity, but you have to have some type of competitive balance throughout the nation and when you take people from teams from all over the country and you put them in the same conference where, you know, they basically eat each other alive, it, it doesn't bode well for the sport. I mean, I understand I'm the old report, but look, you could not have had a better college football day than the Thanksgiving weekend when on Saturday afternoon you started with the battle for the Rose Bowl year in, year out in the yep. Big Ten, Michigan and Ohio State followed by the battle for the other half of the Rose Bowl, usually USC and UCLA on the West Coast. Doubleheader, it was six hours of absolute pure passion and heaven as a college football game. Oklahoma, Nebraska. Oklahoma, Texas, the Red River, you know, the, the Red River shootout. I mean, Penn State, Pitt. Obviously, Auburn, Alabama. I mean, Florida, Georgia, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Game after game after game, and I've only mentioned a few of them. And they have lost their luster and been really deprived of their importance because of this. And I understand again, like it's all about the money, but college football is also a great deal about the passion of the fans. And you are, when you do this, you take some of that passion away because their teams lose their luster. And yeah, everybody's pumped up and yeah, you know, you're 50,000 on one side and 50,000 on the other screaming at each other like Auburn, Alabama, but it doesn't have the same passion because you're not playing for as much. And to me, I, I think the sport is becoming its own worst enemy. And I love college football. I love it as much as I love the NFL. The passion of it and how hard the kids play, it's phenomenal. And, you know, the literally fanaticism, much more than the NFL, the fanaticism of college football is ridiculous. And it's got nothing to do with fantasy. And, yes, it's always got to do with gambling. But the out-and-out fanaticism that is – really identifiable with college football fans really is, is, is unlike any other to me. They're nuts. They're nuts. The grownups are as nuts as the students. You got to drive 41 hours now, Mike, to get from a big 10 school to over to the PAC 12 to play USC and UCLA. So we'll be able to see what the passion's like for these guys. Think about this. I, I live in a state where Texas and Texas A&M have not played a football game against each other in 10 years. Now that'll change as they are both in the SEC in the next couple of years. But, like, that's an example of, like, okay, it's driven by money, but it's driven by money in a weird way. Like, Missouri and Kansas, same thing. It's like there are these rivalries that are ripped apart because of these conflicting interests, essentially. And if the sport was truly run like the NFL, if it was run by a centralized authority, this kind of stuff would not be going on. It's crazy. And we still don't have enough answers to how this is even going to look before this season starts and what changes are still going to be made, especially once media days come. So God only knows what 2024 is going to look like, but we appreciate the insight on the college football side of things. We appreciate your insight on baseball, I guess. And we appreciate your insight <laughs> on Deshaun Watson and coming on the show and telling everybody a little bit about how you got to where you are today. We'd love to talk to you again in the future, of course, but thanks for your time. And please tell your friends we're a lot more impressive than we actually are once you get off with us. I will let them know. John, Al, this has been a pleasure. Thank you guys so much. 
Mike, thanks a blast for being with you. Thanks so much for being with us. It's been a blast. Speak to you soon, all right? Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Keep up the great work, Mike. Appreciate it, man. That was the great Mike Meltzer, uh, host of the Mike Meltzer podcast. As John says, you can hear him also on Sports Radio, Sirius XM 82, Mad Dog Radio, when he is on usually uh, evenings and weekends and giving us a great feel for what's going on in the city of Houston with respect to the professional sports, the college angle, and obviously what's going on with respect to the Deshaun Watson hearing uh, and what transpired down there in Houston during his early career and uh, all things around that franchise and the fan base and their thoughts towards him. We can offer up a next show tease. I guess is the best way to do it with the way sports news is moving along. We never do teases, and it really is about time. It's just a great idea on your part. We'd love to talk about our Los Angeles Lakers and what may be to come once this free agency frenzy really gets going. But we have no idea what's going to happen because today was so crazy in that Kyrie Irving, a couple days ago, had decided he's coming back to the Brooklyn Nets. He wants to honor his four-year contract. He wants to play things out with KD. And then Kevin Durant on Thursday said, that's nice. I'd like a trade. So then the floodgates open up where reports of more than half the league are trying to get Kevin Durant. Well, no kidding, man. <laughs> I mean, of course more than half the league's going to try to get one of the best players in the league. Everybody's going to be breaking down the door to see what they want. That's not breaking any news. Then there's reports, well, maybe him and Kyrie Irving still want to play together, just not in Brooklyn. Maybe they'll go to the Lakers. They wanted to go to the Suns, but the Suns wanted Devin Booker as part of the deal with the Nets. It's just wild in the NBA, as you would always expect it to be. So we don't need to dive in completely yet because we don't have any of the answers under the desk as we record this. We just have our fingers crossed that somehow, some way, the Los Angeles Lakers will be able to figure it out selfishly for us, and then we could rub it in the faces of the other teams. Al, it's always a pleasure. We'll do it again next week. Folks, from my partner, the great John Tiny Lund, until next week, I am Al from White Plains, AKL Renato. This is good. The best damn sports podcast anywhere. He's the new report. I'm the old report. Until next week, have a great 4th of July sports weekend, everybody. We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.